Hello, I'm Christopher Cassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. Brexit, the housing crisis and the Covid pandemic have all presented challenges to Ireland's economy and public finances in recent years. Overseeing the government's financial response has been Fine Gael TD Pascal Donoghue, who served as Minister for Finance from 2017 until late last year, and is now Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. Donoghue has also taken a leading role in the European Union's financial response to Brexit and the pandemic as President of the Eurogroup, as which he has just begun a second term. In front of a live audience at Ireland's Edge in Dingle, the minister and keen music fan spoke to Other Voices founder, Philip King. I have to begin, Minister, by um, asking you the following question, because we are, even though this is all about chatter and debate and conversation, it's at its core a music festival. Mm-hmm. How were the cure the other night? <laughs> the cure were uh, very good. Uh, my, uh, I have been... Uh, the truth of it is my wife is a huge Cure fan. Right. I am a little less so, but I've grown to like them more and more as the years have gone by. Right. And what was the making of my um, interest and enjoyment of the band was their performance at Glastonbury there. Right. Uh, 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 two festivals ago, yes. where they headlined, I yes. think, the Sunday night. Yes. And I sat down and watched the near three hours of the gig, and I thought they were <laughs> out of this world and really enjoyed it. So there I went along to see them on Thursday night, and uh, that morning I heard good news at home, where I was told the set was nearly three hours long. (laughs) So that hung over me a little bit as the day went on, Uh, but it was really enjoyable and uh, great to be back out at gigs again. Well, I think we talked about... You know, that must be the first time I've ever done an interview, and the first question is, did you enjoy the Cure gig? <laughs> well, I mean, we're, so this we're, is a good start. This, Philip. Is, this a, is a good start. What do you mean? There's no such thing as a bad Cure head. You know well, what I mean? That, that <laughs> is, well, I, I, I'm, I'm a long way from a Cure head, both now <laughs> and in my younger years. But there was a, an extraordinary variety of fans at the gig now. Yeah. Uh, goth heads and uh, people with black everywhere I looked. Right. And uh, it made for quite the evening. Right. Well, we began a conversation, I think, seven or eight years ago when I met you in government buildings and we began talking about music and we had just finished coming home from that iconic show in the Albert Hall um, where our president, Michael D. Higgins, went to visit the late Queen and began to talk a little bit about the power of music to bring people together, Mm -hmm. um, to collapse distance a little, Mm -hmm. maybe to increase a mutual understanding of each other and cultural diplomacy and all that went with it. Here we are, um, almost eight years later, 1922-2022, celebrating a century of independence Mm -hmm. um, at a crossroads for Ireland, really. And I would like to begin by asking you, um, here we are now, what are your hopes and aspirations for where we might be able to go with celebrating our independence and being part of Europe and you having that seat um, in Europe and what you see and what you feel about what might be in front of us. Oh my God, Philip, there's a lot in that question there. Could we go back to the cure? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, We we live, unfortunately, in a world that is increasingly dangerous and increasingly volatile. Mm -hmm. And whenever I am at something as happy and as Uh, peaceful and where we're all in each other's company and a join again uh, the value of human contact and of art 
I'm always drawn to the fact that to the east the darkness is falling and we have our fellow Europeans at the moment fleeing the first war of scale since the Second World War in Europe. Mm -hmm. And much of my thinking about where we are now and the future is, of course, influenced so strongly by that development and by the multiple different economic and political shocks our very open country has had to contend with since 2016. Mm -hmm. So at home, uh, the things that would be about, about what I want to see happen won't come as any surprise to anybody in this room, briefly on a political level, it's how we can meet the needs of our society even better than we're doing at the moment. I'd always make the case for our country doing well, but representing a constituency like Dublin Central, I'm ever aware of how we're letting people down and what we need to do better. But as I look at the rhythm of history, I believe we're now moving into. So much of where I think our energies will fall will be about how Ireland can be on the right side of major change that is now beginning in the world and in Europe. Uh, the move to a lower carbon future, the move to a more digital future. Uh, these are seismic changes that are happening at the same time as we are grappling with the aftermath of a world changing pandemic while dealing with a war. And the lesson of history is unambiguous. In the aftermath of a pandemic, a world, the world changes. Mm -hmm. And we are now dealing with that and the war and the secular changes of climate and technology. Mm -hmm. And the great challenge of Europe and the great challenge of Ireland mm -hmm. will be on, to, be on the right side of those big changes. And uh, that, is, that is our great historic challenge. Mm -hmm. um, in 1919, 1920, um, W.B. Yeats wrote a poem. And um, one of the lines in the poem, he says, um, things fall apart the centre cannot hold. Mm -hmm. Here we are a century later, and just listen to your remarks there about the, the challenges that are there. Um, the polarities that used to exist when I was growing up were, were you left or were you right? Um, it, it would appear that now we're talking about, is it democracy or authoritarianism? And you often talk about the centre. Do you believe that the centre can hold? Are you, are you, are you still... Are you still the, full of the notion that that is a possibility? Yes, I am. And uh, if I look at 2022, uh, the centre has had a better year than it has had for many years. The re-election of President Macron, the midterm results in America, Brazil. and of course, Brazil, uh, mm -hmm. what happened there. But even beyond that, in the aftermath of the pandemic and in the darkest days of the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, the the centre the concept of an objective truth, the concept of a state working hand in hand with an economy and with our scientists. All of those concepts came together to help us overcome a pandemic that in the period between March of 2020 and the middle of summer of 2020, it wasn't at all clear that we were going to have an answer to. Mm -hmm. So I believe a big case can be made for those efforts. But at the same time, my big lesson is how easily the centre becomes conflated with the status quo and with the establishment. Explain that to me. So the centre and the case for stability is very easily seen as the case for maintaining the order as it is at the moment. Mm -hmm. 
and the order as it is at the moment, whether a climate, whether it be regard to housing, isn't doing well enough. Uh, so we need to be more agile in making the case for that kind of politics. And in particular, a certain tone of politics that you touched on in a moment ago, which is for most people, not seeing your political opponent as an enemy and not believing that you're the only person that has all the right answers. Mm -hmm. And that tone and redeveloping that tone again after developments that have happened elsewhere in the world, I think is very important because language matters so much. So, at the table in Europe, um, during the pandemic, profound decisions were made mm -hmm. about how much money was there to spend? Mm -hmm. How could we alleviate mm -hmm. people's difficulty? Mm -hmm. um, you sat at that table, mm -hmm. and you're off to Brussels again tomorrow, mm -hmm. and we'll probably be sitting at that table mm -hmm. again for the next couple of years. Um, can you share with us some of the insights of what it's like to be around that table where there is so much power and responsibility invested. And also, of course, as the president, you are the person who must take on board differing and diverse views mm -hmm. that come around that table. And that I suppose you must be tempted from time to time not to see them just through an Irish filter, but in a purely European way. Mm -hmm. So it is um, the, the most humbling responsibility and feeling to sit down at a very large table, which I do at every month, and to sit down behind the Irish flag, which I did for three years, uh, when you're making the case for your country. Uh, and then for the last two years, uh, I uh, sit at the top of the table, trying to pull it all together. Right. And uh, that is, I'm ever grateful to my country for giving me the opportunity to serve in that way, particularly in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And what you have such a sharp sense of at when you're at the table is the profound national differences that there are, but also that the secret of Europe is that in the space between managing distances is actually our strength. Right. Because what you aim to do um, economically and politically is find areas of agreement that are resilient and that can hold and you build on them day by day, week by week, month by month. And it looks over the space of a, a year that you've made little progress uh, and then it looks then over the space of a decade like you've made huge progress. And that is the essence of the European project mm -hmm. and then of the group of ministers then that I chair and that I'm responsible for. Mm -hmm. The pandemic was the greatest test of us. Uh, I was there in these terrible moments where I had my uh, colleague, the finance minister for Italy, talk about what was happening in Bergamo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was there when we all realised that the pandemic was capable of ripping us all apart. Uh, because it was attacking the very thing that is the glue of Europe, which is contact. Mm -hmm. And those moments and those months in which we committed to literally doing all that needed to be done mm -hmm. to preserve Europe and the Euro in the face of that were moments, frankly, you know, I hope I never have again because mm -hmm. they were so demanding and the stakes were so high. 
but they also reminded me of the value of what we have in Europe and how incredibly important it is to our country's prospects. Mm -hmm. So here we are in West Kerry mm -hmm. on the edge of Europe, mm -hmm. right? So America's that way, mm -hmm. um, due west, and many people left this place and headed yeah. in that direction. Many people went east as well and mm -hmm. um, went to England. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned the, the year 2016, mm -hmm. of course, um, I think we have to talk a little bit about Brexit. Mm -hmm. And in a conversation that we had on the phone um, a couple of weeks ago, um, you mentioned Rishi, Rishi Sunak, who is mm -hmm. um, uh, mm -hmm. the new prime minister um, in the UK. And of course, you got to know him when he was the mm -hmm. chancellor. <coughs> tell me a little bit about him and tell me a little bit about are things settling down a little bit in terms of our relationship east-west? I know that Ambassador Adrian O'Neill is in the room, mm -hmm. who's just come back from his term yeah, of, five, of, of five years yeah. in the UK, and we've talked a lot about this up and down. Um, tell me a little bit about what you see as how our relationships are developing there. Are they, are they getting a little better? I, yes, they are. And uh, Brexit, there's a few projects that have consumed nearly all of my political life in recent years, and one of them, of course, was Brexit. Yes. And uh, uh, across uh, nearly a two-year period, I had the opportunity to work with uh, Rishi Sunak. He's a remarkable man. He is a very good man, mm -hmm. a very honest man, and an incredibly intelligent person, mm -hmm. incredibly intelligent. And uh, the United Kingdom is indeed uh, very fortunate to have a man of his values and capacities as their prime minister, as any country would be. Mm -hmm. And he clearly has his, a very demanding agenda to deal with now. And he's a confirmed Brexiteer. He is a very strong Brexiteer. And in fact, in David Cameron's autobiography, For the Record, one of the most interesting passages in it is that he writes that when Rishi Sunak came to him, to tell him that he was going to support Brexit. David Cameron wrote that he knew he had lost the soul of the modern Conservative Party. Uh, because if somebody like Rishi Sunak was mm. committing to Brexit, mm. uh, David Cameron at that point realised where the centre of the Conservative Party was shipping, uh, moving to. And Re Prime Minister Sunak is fully committed to Brexit and uh, has made that case to me in ch as Chancellor over nearly two years. Um, but to go back to your question regarding the nature of the relationship, there's no doubt about it, the tone of the relationship between our two countries has changed significantly now in recent uh, months. How would you define it now? Would you say it's, is it cold? Oh, it's anything but cold now. It's certainly getting warmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, as somebody, <laughs> as somebody uh, uh, certainly getting warmer, and I hope the warmth and the change in tone is the precursor to something that's a lot more substantive. Because as somebody who lived in the UK for many years, and I have a deep personal relationship, as many Irish people do, with the United Kingdom, with England. Absolutely. I left yeah. Ireland in 1996 to go and work in the UK. I lived in, in London, I lived in Newcastle. I spent a lot of my time in the UK. I'm only just back from Peterborough last weekend. A prerequisite to a secure Ireland, uh, an economically secure Ireland, is a, a United Kingdom that's doing well economically. Mm -hmm. And 
a prerequisite to good political prospects for our country is also a United Kingdom uh, that is, um, is stable and uh, doing well. And when that doesn't happen, we're reminded even more of the vast importance of the European project to our country, which I remain convinced ever more than ever uh, is the vehicle through which we can realise our ambitions for the next century. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that as somebody who is m more aware probably than most of the imperfections and how challenging the European project can be. But if I look at the world, if I look at what is now changing in our world, uh, I believe the best compass for Ireland for the next century is our relationship and place within the European Union. Mm -hmm. And of course, we'll celebrate 50 years as mm -hmm. members of the European Union next year. And we'll also be celebrating and marking 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement yes. at the same time. Yes. Uh, to your point, you know, these two things are going on simultaneously. Uh, and, and that is what has made the Brexit process so demanding because the vital background architecture to the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement was, of course, the single market of course. and was, of course, the yeah. soft power of the European Union and how it changed the political vocabulary of our island. Mm -hmm. And that is why those challenges of 2018 and 2019, it's great to hear that Adrian O'Neill is here. He did a magnificent job representing Ireland across that period in the United Kingdom. But they were so testing because the, the, uh, the foundation and the architecture of how we made such progress in our country was, of course, so uh, challenged by the consequences of Brexit, consequences which we'll be dealing with now for some time to come. And just, just at a personal level, then, when you're in a room um, representing your country, uh, there's the Minister for Finance, there's the public, a public figure, um, like in any relationship, how are the tensions manifest? You know, when you're when, when you're in a meeting, does it does it get a bit tetchy? You know, do, do, is you there have to look at the state, state papers in thirty years' time. Are <laughs> the one? Are the one? You're, you're, you're in Kerry now. <laughs> I, know. I know I'm in Kerry. I know, yeah. <laughs> you can tell uh. the truth. You know? <laughs> but you know, no, no, but you know what I mean. Does, does it get a bit tense? Some of the meetings and many of the. Uh, many of the encounters and work that we had across that period was very demanding. It was very demanding. Yes. Uh, and that, I think, is evident to our country from the seriousness of what we were dealing with. But the work that we had to manage uh, with our, our friends in the United Kingdom, and I use that word deliberately, mm -hmm. uh, because we still have far more in common with the UK from, as Europeans than we do have that we differ on, but the process, the political meetings, many of them across that period were very demanding. Mm -hmm. uh, however, uh, as a professional politician, and I'm very proud to be a politician, it is also my responsibility to represent uh, the, this country with dignity and professionalism mm -hmm. and to always separate the personal from the political. And I'm very pleased that I maintained very good personal relations with all of my interlocutors and colleagues mm -hmm. for many years and in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. 
So I kept in contact with Rishi after he was Chancellor across the summer of the leadership contest. Mm -hmm. And the last text that I sent him, I suspect forever, will be the morning before he became Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. And I texted him to wish him good luck. And uh, uh, we've, uh, he supports Southampton, I support Spurs, <laughs> and we still manage to uh, uh, have a good, con good, good personal relationship. So it, it attests to the ability to do that even when the challenges are great. Just in that cultural diplomacy piece, the things that can ameliorate the toxicity in relationships mm -hmm. or ameliorate some of the difficulty or the tension in relationships is that shared thing that we have with our neighbours to the east, yeah. which is our deep sharing of music and language and mm -hmm. literature and, 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 and so much. And sport. Much, and, and sport yeah, and so much completely. more. But um, Guy Garvey and Elbow came here a long time ago yeah. when they'd been about 10 years on the road and decided they were wondering would, would they pack it up. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't. Mm -hmm. They came here, they made the seldom seen kid the following year, did Glastonbury, and we got a phone call saying, can we come back to Dingle yeah. to uh, celebrate the best year that we've ever had? Yeah. But it's, it, it, it's that warmth, mm -hmm. uh, Minister, that I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that we have a lot of stuff in our toolkit that enables us as Irish people to engage at a, a fairly profound level. And sometimes there is no metric for the priceless. Mm. And so when we come to talk about art and artists and how we speak to the world and how we per we're perceived um, in the world, we have an amazing asset. Mm. And, you know, all of us here who are artists and there will be between 300 and 350 people between artists and arts workers working on this piece mm -hmm. for the weekend, mm -hmm. you know, and our contribution, you know, I think going back a century even, mm -hmm. two centuries, is, is immense. Mm -hmm. The supports for artists are mm -hmm. hugely important. Mm -hmm. Wearing your hat as the Minister for Finance, are you in favour of that? Are you <laughs> that was very subtly done. <laughs> very subtly done. Very subtly done. Would the Department of Finance say, be, be, turn its face against the basic income, in other words. What, what would you say to that? So, so, so my God, from Guy Garvey to basic income, Philip. Um, they are related. They are indeed related. Uh, so where do I begin your question? Uh, so Yes. So <laughs> I, 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 I'll get to that bit. I'll get to that bit. So, uh, I mean, there can, yeah. be no, there can be no greater evidence, well look, there could be no greater evidence of, I think my, the Department of Finances and certainly my personal commitment to supporting our arts, than the fact that we live in a country where we're opening up more libraries. Uh, we live in a country that during the pandemic, I made very clear that during the pandemic, one of the sectors of our country, because it's so vital to our society, that all would be done to support were our artists. And if you look at the funding that went to the Arts Council, if you look at the basic income scheme that has now been rolled out, mm -hmm. um, I've played my part in them uh, and will absolutely continue to do that and support that. Mm -hmm. I know the case is always made for more, but if my challenge is, is every audience that I sit in front of, 
representing different sectors of our economy and different strands of our society, they also always make the case for more. Mm -hmm. And it falls to myself and to Michael McGrath to try to get an equilibrium between all of that and also the need for our country to be safe and not open to risks outside. Uh, but to go all the way back to Guy Garvey and to Elbow, <laughs> like one of the best gigs I was ever at was, that wasn't distraction, because I am going to come back. No, I am going to come back to the basic income bit. Uh, was the Rulers of the Free World Tour that they did. Yes. Uh, and they did their Irish gig of that in Vicar Street. Yeah. And it was the first time I ever saw uh, Elbow. Yeah. Uh, and then shortly after I saw them, Seldom Sing Kid, yeah. um, uh, the Olympics happened to them, and yeah. of course they were playing the Tree Arena That's right. and so on and yeah. all of that. And Guy Garvey has just gone on to be unbelievable. But if I was to make my list of top 10 best gigs of all time, <laughs> that gig in the Vicar Street would be one of them. Yes. And I bring all this back in a little journey which will end up in basic income. Right. To, if you look at the different things that we've been talking about very briefly yes. here, which is the risk of fracture, particularly right. in the pandemic, mm -hmm. which we still haven't recovered from, the way in which there's a slow trend all, all underway at the moment for lots of different reasons, that we step into ourselves, opposed to stepping out of ourselves. The antidote to so much of that is communal experiences, the catalyst of which can either be art or sport, mm -hmm. which is why you matter so much, mm -hmm. and people like you mm -hmm. matter so much in making that happen, mm -hmm. which is why, whether it be Dingle, whether it be Electric Picnic, whether it be other voices, all matters so much for the communion of when people come together sure. in front of an artist to step out of themselves. Mm. And that therefore leads all the way back to your question then regarding uh, will we support, do we support? The answer is yes. The answer is it will never be enough because the case is always made for more. And it should be because that's the way democracy works. I'll take that as a yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's the best yes you're going to get anyway, it is. <laughs> I mean, when we started this thing 21 years ago, um, the, the minister, we sat, we, we, we sat down and sort of said, what is this thing? Mm -hmm. Or why would you do it? And the answer was really was new, as my wife said. She said, we celebrate what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really is the mission statement of the thing still. So when Hosier does his first gig here or Dermot Kennedy does his yeah. first gig here, it's, it's capturing and encoding, if you like, the emotional soundtrack of now what are maybe two generations mm -hmm. of musicians in a place in the West of Ireland, which is like, as Martin O'Kine would have it, Cunha and Greer, little hair's corner mm -hmm. of richness mm -hmm. um, in, in, and that in sort of, I don't know, enriches us in ways we yeah. don't know. Um, when we were speaking on the phone um, recently, I told you the story that I was, I, I was back west here and um, walked up to the top of the mountain mm -hmm. and a big gale of wind came in from, from the Basket Islands. Mm -hmm. And it's happened many, many times, mm -hmm. but there was something revelatory happened to me or just a little light bulb went on, if you'll pardon the pun. And I said, that's our wind. Mm -hmm. We own this wind, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, here is a resource, and I noted last week the, 
the, the, the interconnector being built mm -hmm. between, between here and yeah. France and the Taoiseach op going, to, yeah. going to open that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are some folks in the room who are very aware of that work as well. But what I'm getting to really is, in terms of the things that we have and the resources that we have, the going about, how we go about developing those mm -hmm. so as that we hold on to the value of them. Mm -hmm. And every musician that was ever born knows this, that if you sell your copyright, it's gone. Mm -hmm. So if we looked at it either as intellectual property or owning this resource, mm -hmm. which in the first year of a new decade of independence helps us to be independent in terms of our energy yeah. and in our thinking and who and what we are. You know, are the resources there to develop that resource and to own it for ourselves? Um, absolutely. And what I love about when I come to visit here and when I come to visit this gorgeous part of our country is I feel the light changes as I approach this perimeter of our country. Sure. And I feel I get beyond a particular point uh, on the journey mm -hmm. and the light changes and then the air changes. And the part of Kerry that most personifies that for me is uh, a place you know very well as well, which of course is Valencia Island. Yeah. And, the yeah. and yeah. Valencia Island mm. is the most extraordinary story because the first intercontinental cable ever sent in the world mm. arrived at Valencia Island, mm. where the emperor, uh, where the, um, the, the queen of the British Empire wished President of the United States of America, a good day. Mm -hmm. And in order for that cable to be laid, the largest vessel that then existed in the world had to travel to Valencia Island to pick up the cable and go across the Atlantic, the Agamemnon. Mm -hmm. And so what, I mean, that, I always find it incredible. You know, Kerry was the birthplace of globalization and the communications <laughs> revolution. And we don't hear enough about it. <laughs> How uncarry is that? But, but, but to, to, to go back to this point, the, the reason why it's relevant to yes. uh, the point you're making is what happened then is we were at the forefront of recognising a revolution that was about to happen. Sure. Those people who were living in that magnificent white building, the magnificent cable station, mm -hmm. now gone, but the residents are still there, recognised the change that was happening. And... If I look at where we are now, there are two revolutions that are, going, that are now accelerating in the world. It's the energy revolution and the technology revolution. And by technology, I'm talking about quantum computing, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. and energy. I'm talking about a change in the use, the price, and the nature of energy. And I believe our opportunity for the next century is to be on the right side of both of those changes. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the energy revolution now, I believe it is comparable to the FDI opportunity Ireland had in the 1990s, yeah. which leads to your question then about do we have the resources we do? Are we already making progress on it? Of course we are. In the different measurements, mm -hmm. if you look at the share of our total energy needs that are provided by wind and renewables, we're either the first or the second best within the European Union at the moment. We're very close to Denmark. Mm -hmm. But as President van der Leyen made clear on Thursday in the Doyle, Ireland needs to do and can do far better. Mm -hmm. 
And there's all kinds of things now underway regarding wind auctions that are being accelerated because we have the resources, we need to develop the infrastructure, particularly at our ports, mm -hmm. to be able to manage this. And a big part uh, of how we can maintain, or please God, grow our living standards mm -hmm. and be a force for good in Europe, at least in the time ahead, will be for Ireland to end up exporting that energy and for that energy to be clean. And we have at least a decade ahead of us to now to realise that potential. It's a remarkable opportunity. It is a gigantic opportunity. And it will require huge effort to grasp it. But we're actually already doing well. And it's to the enormous credit of Minister Eamon Ryan and his party and his work, the progress that we are making there. Uh, and we need to do more, and we will. Yes, and of course, Eamon Sinnott is in the room when we talk about the little microprocessor. I mean, hardest the, things the, to make the, in the world. The thing, the thing without which nothing works anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's a sine qua non, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. There's two things I always remember about my first visit to Intel, and if Eamon's here, he'll kill me later on tonight for saying this. But first time I ever visited Intel uh, in Kildare, I sat down with some of his colleagues, and they were going to make a presentation to me, and the PowerPoint projector wouldn't work, <laughs> and I just thought. <laughs> Well, this is great. If this happens to me all the time, the PowerPoint projector doesn't work. And that I could be in the most unbelievably... Techy uh, place. It's beyond techy. And the PowerPoint projector didn't work. I loved it. And, uh, but the second thing, of course, and so like, I'm already dead, a dead man walking after making that comment. But the second thing was, is when I was there, um, Eamon, Eamon made the point that uh, there are particular technological developments that are being explored in Ireland that are so unique and so risky that it's so difficult for those scientists to get support to do it. Mm -hmm. And due to Eamon's idea and his inspiration, and Eamon is one of the most incredible uh, engineers and scientists and stakeholders in our country, that then led to the setting up of a fund called the Disruptive Technology Fund that has now made tens of millions of euros available to scientists and entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who are developing ideas that will all be to our benefit, but are potentially so unlikely to succeed that nobody will support them. But now the state does. Right. And that idea came from Eamon Sinnott. So you're taking the risk. Taking the risk and supporting those who do. And the government agreed to take that risk. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that was just an example of the kind of dialogue that can lead to ideas that I hope help. Well, two very short things just to finish, Minister. Um, the, the sciences and the hard sciences are moving on that track, and the humanities are over here moving on this track. And we have a huge emphasis on STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths and some emphasis on the humanities side of the house. Yeah. And, you know, what Eamon and myself have often discussed um, is finding a place where these two things can converge, because surely the outcomes are going to be better if we can find a place where there is a convergence between, you know, so we have a, a STEAM acronym as opposed to just a STEM one or a humanities <laughs> one. Um, what we are seeing here, and what we are seeing here at a thing like Other Voices and at Ireland's Edge, is that convergence actually happening? 
you know, I mean, rock and roll was born when you plugged in. Mm -hmm. It was an, an electric, it was a technology, if mm -hmm. you like. Mm -hmm. The songs and tunes that left this part of the world um, as an orally transmitted tradition and the heads and the mm -hmm. hands and the feet of economic migrants out of mm -hmm. here were encoded onto wax cylinders and 78 records mm -hmm. in Tin Pan Alley and sent back to us when the business of music was born and mm -hmm. we left an indelible thumbprint on that. Yeah. And I'm just making the case, really, yeah. that looking at the, fund, the, the funding for Science Foundation Ireland and looking at the funding mm -hmm. for the arts and humanities and education in universities to find the places where mm -hmm. these two things can come together will possibly give us, I think, a competitive edge as we're at Ireland's edge in that particular, in that mm -hmm. particular space. Would you agree? So <laughs> there's a great letter in the FT today <laughs> from a uh, professor of uh, music, I think it is, and he makes the point that Taylor Swift has perfected the perfect three-minute Spotify pop, si pop single. I read it. Very interesting article. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he, he compa compares her to Mozart at the end of the letter, which I found right. very interesting. But he was making the point about the harnessing of technology mm -hmm. and the impact that has had on pop music, mm -hmm. which is a similar point that you're making there, mm -hmm. which leads them back to the value of, of art in, a, in, in response to technology and the harnessing of technology. Mm -hmm. And I think there is another argument as to why it will matter, mm -hmm. which is the power of technology and the challenge of climate are already so big, mm -hmm. but are only going to get bigger, that actually we will require our philosophers and we will require those who think about ethics mm -hmm. to help us navigate our way through this change in a way that will be deeper than it has been in the past. And um, jumping around a little bit when I was uh, just coming down to you, I got into the hotel and I went upstairs and turned on the World Cup and uh, America were playing, Net playing the Netherlands. And anyway, I got to halftime in the BBC and the BBC were doing this thing where they talk about all the good things that are coming up before Christmas. And has anybody here read Philip Pullman? Yeah, this yeah. Dark Materials trilogy, yeah, 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 yeah. an unbelievable trilogy. And uh, BBC and HBO are dramatising the final part of it, and the final part of it starting in a few weeks' time. But Philip Pullman developed this idea of experimental theology, and it's one of the strands of the Dark Materials trilogy. Mm -hmm. And he was talking there about the concept of our humanities and how essential they are mm -hmm. to thinking about the world and change that's happening. And that just reminds me that I'm certain that very, very shortly it will be um, our humanities that will be doing more than advising us mm -hmm. about the use and management of technologies and responding to scientific change. Mm -hmm. I think it was Jacques Attali, the French um, political economist, who said two things about music. He said, that what music does is it makes audible the thing that gradually becomes visible. Mm -hmm. right? And he described musicians as the heralds of the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we have ears to hear mm -hmm. and the means to listen mm -hmm. carefully, mm -hmm. we will be guided by the prophecies that are inherent mm -hmm. in 
the giving of great music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mm. well worth a significant investment. In it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Plus, uh, uh, and it also has to be great fun. Yes. Yes. Like, I'm reminded on the way here, like, I, I, one of the books I need to read over Christmas is the, the new Nick Cave book. Oh, yeah. And uh, he said very recently that art shouldn't always be in the hands of the virtuous. Yeah. And he's right, isn't he? He is dead right. He is, he is absolutely right, he? dead he's right. He's dead right. <laughs> but to go back to basic income, <laughs> to go back to us, as you well know, there's a huge project underway with regard to us. And while I there hope, is. I, I, and while I hope, and I'm pretty sure Nick Cave will never need us, uh, and uh, many of the artists, some of the artists that are here today, uh, may or do need us, yes. and will in the future. I mean, we're doing big work on it at the moment, so watch this space. Great. Thank you to Pascal Donoghue for joining Philip King in Tingle. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with farmers, artists and activists here in Kerry to discover the future in the fields. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Southwind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.